before our message, we're continuing on in our series. We started a new series last week looking at songs of the Bible. And so we're looking at songs in the Old Testament, the Psalms, and that's where we are for now. It's where we started last week. We'll be there uh, this week. But we will also ultimately move into the New Testament and look at some uh, what are likely, there's, there are little passages there in some of the epistles, but they're very likely uh, originally Christian hymns, songs, that make their way into the New Testament scriptures. So we'll look at a couple of those as well. But for now, we're in the Old Testament looking at some songs, and, and particularly the Psalms. And today we're going to be looking at Psalm 25. So you can even open up your Bibles, flip over there to Psalm 25, be ready to read it. Uh, and a little bit of information about this psalm before we dive right in, dig in, and sort of move our way through verse by verse, do all the teaching. Just a little bit about this psalm. It's an acrostic, just like our psalm last week was an acrostic, or really was Psalms 9 and 10 that together formed an acrostic last week. We only looked at Psalm 9. Uh, but here, this is also an acrostic. This one's complete. This is a singular psalm and always was. We don't have to tackle that like we did last week, how Psalms 9 and 10 were likely originally one. This is sort of a singular composed uh, psalm. And we see the full acrostic. And, and what that means here is that each successive verse, right, then begins with consecutive uh, letters in the Hebrew alphabet, from the first al letter of the alphabet all the way to the end. So verse after verse, it moves through from the first letter to the second to the third all the way to the end. In each verse, the word that begins that verse begins with that consecutive uh, successive letter of the alphabet. So it's an acrostic. That's just a little bit about the structure. Certainly you're not going to see that in the English version because that doesn't quite carry over when you translate it. But if you were to look at the Hebrew, you would see that. But I want to talk about a little bit about the overall flow of this psalm. I think when you sort of understand the big picture a little bit up front, then when you go through the psalm verse by verse, you can sort of place each verse in its context, in a sense, and, and better understand it as a whole. Uh, so even right up front, uh, I'll mention, we see this in the heading, that this is a psalm of David, right? That's what the heading says, of David. So, so David wrote this psalm. We don't know every little detail about the specifics of the situation, but what's quite clear from the psalm itself is that David has sinned in some way against the Lord, right? And as a result of that sin, there's some punishment in his life. God has punishment, punished him, and specifically the way in which he's being punished is that uh, he's being afflicted by his enemies. We're not told exactly what that looks like, exactly what that means, what is this affliction specifically, all of the details of it. We don't know every specific, but there's some sort of affliction at the hand of his enemies, and this is a punishment that God is bringing against him because of some sort of sin uh, in his life. And then what we see here in the psalm is David's response, his response to this sin of his, his response to his situation, and it's a response of repentance, uh, it is a response of seeking forgiveness in the Lord, and sort of in seeking forgiveness, he's also seeking, of course, uh, deliverance from his situation, since his situation, this affliction that he's under, right, is really a punishment. So if he's seeking forgiveness from the Lord, then tied in with that, he's seeking for this punishment to be removed from him and for him to be delivered from this affliction at the hands of his enemies. But it, it doesn't just end there. It's not just that he responds to this sin with, with repentance and seeking forgiveness in the Lord, uh, but he takes it a step further and he sort of recognizes that, that sort of at the root of this problem is a sin problem within him. That, that's sort of at the root of it is he's broken, he's fallen, he's sinful. Even though he loves the Lord and belongs to the Lord, there's still sinfulness within his heart. And if that doesn't change, 
then this is just going to keep happening time and again, right? He'll sin in some other way or maybe even in a similar way, and then there'll be punishment upon him again and so forth and so on, and it will keep repeating. So David recognizes this heart problem, this sin problem within him, and so what does he do? Well, he cries out to the Lord to ultimately bring about a change within his heart, right? And we'll talk about that. We're going to see this in the psalm, but for God ultimately to really teach him the way of the Lord, the paths of the Lord, that is the path that God has set before man, the way in which man is to live his life in light of God, in light of God's commands, his precepts, basically an upright life of obedience and faithfulness to the Lord. And basically he cries out to the Lord, teach me this path, teach me this way in which I am to live my life. But it's not so much just a head knowledge, but sort of a knowledge that sinks into his heart and brings about a, a change of heart. And so he's seeking for the Lord to change his heart, to bring about a uh, real spiritual growth within him and to purge that sin from his heart so then he might be able to live a life of greater obedience to the Lord so that this wouldn't continue to happen time and again. And so that's sort of the general flow of this psalm and we'll see that as we work our way through. And so let's dive in. We're going to start right the first verse. Again, we sort of tackled the heading of David. Pretty simple, straightforward. It's a Davidic psalm. He wrote it. And it says, verse 1, To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. In this language of lifting, lifting up one's soul, this is the language of praise and worship. So he's saying, Lord, I worship you, I praise you. And probably this is intended a little bit in two senses. One is sort of, yes, this is how he's beginning by uh, affirming God and, and praising him and worshiping him right at the outset of the psalm. But I'd say probably a little bit more so, he's really speaking not of an individual instance of right now in this moment before I dive into the rest of this song, this psalm, right at this moment I'm going to worship you and praise you. I'd say more so he has sort of in view the whole of his life and this statement that he's making is, you, O oh Lord, are the one that I worship, right? I don't worship other gods, false deities. I don't worship money or power or this or that. You're the one, O oh Lord, whom I worship. I would say that's probably mostly the sense in which he means it. And then moving on to verse 2, O oh my God, in you I trust. And I'd say the same thing here. In this very situation, he is trusting in the Lord. But I'd say David also has in view that over the whole of his life, right, as a faithful follower of the Lord, he has repeatedly trusted in God time and again. That's just sort of who David is. He trusts in the Lord. He trusts in the Lord in the sense of he has faith in the Lord, saving faith in him, yes, but also time and again as David has wound up in, in a distressing situation, his life's been on the line, right? Is he going to make it out of this alive? Time and again, he has trusted in the Lord. And, and of course, in this instance, he's not going to do anything different. And so, right, oh my God, in you I trust. And he goes on here, let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. So what he's saying here, in a sense, to put it simply, let not my enemies be victorious, right? Whatever this affliction is, whatever way in which his enemies are coming against him, I'd say probably his life is on the line in this, um, that it's not just that they're bad-mouthing him and saying some mean things about him and, oh, what a terrible affliction, right? Probably in some way his life is on the line, and we'll see that later as we get to, to verse 20. Um, but so, again, we don't know all the specifics, but the point is here, his enemies have sort of in some way risen up against him and basically let them not be victorious, right? And therefore, let me not be put to shame by them triumphing over me and let not my enemies exult over me as they triumph over me. But of course, Lord, defend me, guard me, right? Take up my cause, fight for me, O Lord, against them as they seek me, seek my life 
seek to bring me down. So then reading on, verse 3. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Right, so for the one who waits for the Lord, that is, waits for the Lord in the sense of to, to show up and, and fight for them and defend them and deliver them from the hand of their enemies, right? For the one who waits for the Lord in that sense, for the one who trusts in him for deliverance and victory, for that person, right, well, they're not going to be put to shame, right? Their enemies aren't going to triumph over them and then they'll be shamed in it all, but rather the Lord will fight for them. Right? And of course, who will be the ones who are put to shame? It's these treacherous, treacherous evil ones who, of course, thinking in this specific situation, the enemies of David, right? It's they who will be put to shame and not David who is the one who waits for the Lord. Though he's speaking generally. He's not just speaking of his own situation, but of course he's speaking in general. Anyone who waits on you and looks to you for help, right? They are not the ones who will be put to shame, but it will be the wicked ones who oppose them. And then he goes on. Verse 4, make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Right and here, this is where we get to David recognizing what's at the root of the problem. Sort of, right, he's sinned against the Lord, this punishment that has come against him as a result, this affliction at the hands of his enemies. Uh, we're going to see him responding with repentance and seeking forgiveness in the Lord. But here he's sort of recognizing the, the root problem, and it's his own sinfulness. Yes, he loves the Lord. He, he belongs to the Lord, surely. But, but that doesn't mean that he's perfect and without sin, right? Of course, he's not. There's still sinfulness within him, and he lives that out with acts of sin and rebellion, and that's what gets him into this mess and this jam. And he realizes if there's, if there's no change within, within him, then this is just going to keep repeating over and over again. It's just going to be some other sin, you know, next week or next month or next year. And then there'll be more punishment as a result of that. And David doesn't want to dishonor God and disobey him. And so what he realizes is what he really needs is not just to repent and be forgiven in this specific case, but, but thinking long term, what he really needs is a change of heart, right? He needs God to bring about a transformation on the inside so that then he can live out a life of greater obedience and faithfulness to the Lord. Now, he doesn't put it in terms of give me a change of heart or, or give me spiritual growth. That's not the wording that he uses. But what he says is, make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. And here, your ways, O Lord, or, or your paths. This is the way of the Lord in the sense of the way that God has set forth for man that man ought to live in. Sort of this upright way of living in light of God, his commands, obediently uh, in service to him. And so he's saying, teach me that way, O Lord. Right? He looks back over his life. He realizes, you know, the reason he's in this mess is he didn't follow that way. He didn't live in that way in that instance, right? So he's saying, teach me that way, O Lord, the way in which I ought to live in service to you, obediently unto you. But clearly what he has in mind is not just intellectually speaking, teach me your way. As if, you know, David just doesn't know any better. He just doesn't know the commands of the Lord, and he just needs some head knowledge about what he's to do, and then he'll be okay. That, that's clearly not what he has in view. I'd say it's a much more a holistic, make me to know your ways, teach me your paths. It's not just part of me, my mind, but rather make me to know, teach me in a holistic way, including the whole of the being, certainly specifically centered on the heart. Basically, instruct and educate my heart not just my head to understand the truth, because in all reality, let's face it, David would have known intellectually pretty well what he had to do to live obediently unto the Lord. 
What was really the problem was where his heart was and certainly that sinfulness of heart in, in various ways that would lead him astray. And so he's saying, in a very complete and holistic way, make me to know your ways, teach me your paths. Let that knowledge sink, not just, not just let it infiltrate my head, but let it sink down deep into my heart and affect a change. Instruct me and teach me in a heart way, not just help me to know it intellectually, but cultivate within my heart a greater love for you and a greater desire and passion for living obediently unto you in service to you. And so clearly that's the sense in which he means teach me your paths, not just a head knowledge, not just instruct my mind. And this becomes quite clear in the next verse where he says, lead me in your truth and teach me. And this isn't like lead me into an understanding of your truth, the truth of your way and your commandments and so forth. It's, it's in the sense of day in and day out, lead me in living out your commands faithfully. He's talking about uh, really here a heart issue of the sin within his heart and God bring about a change within me so that then you, I might live out a life of obedience unto you. And Lord, lead me day after day after day in your ways, in your path, that I might live out that life that honors and glorifies you in every way rather than sinning as he did here and then the, the consequences and the punishment and so forth and so on. And he goes on here, for you are the God of my salvation, for you I wait all the day long. Right here, David recognizes that God is the God of his salvation. In, in, in many senses, right? David has been in times of trial and distress time and again over his life, and you can imagine him sort of looking back and saying, boy, every time my life was sort of hanging in, you know, in the balance, and, and you know, would I make it through alive or not? What was going to happen? Would I win? Would my enemies win? Who would triumph? Right? Time and again, God fought for David, delivered him, saved him from that situation. But certainly, he also would mean it in the sense of even just sort of big picture, eternal salvation. You've saved me from my sin. I, I've put my faith in you, Lord God, for the forgiveness of sins, and, and you have saved me from my sin. In every sense, God, you're the God of my salvation, whether the greatest sense of it, eternal salvation, right, giving me eternal life when I deserve eternal punishment, but even in the little details of life in the here and now, whenever my life's been on the line, you've been there to save me from it. You're the God of my salvation. And so, it's for you I wait all the day long, right? Who else is he going to wait for to show up and deliver him other than the God of his salvation, the one who time and again has delivered him from his time of trial? So then going on, verse 6. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. And here it's not remember your mercy in the sense of, God, you know, maybe you just, sometimes you forget things, and so you just need to remember this. Uh, that's certainly not what's meant. Of course, God always knows what is, knows everything, but of course this is even his very character, sort of attributes of God, that he is merciful, compassionate, that he's loving. But remember here is the sense of, call to mind and act in light of. So basically, act in light of your mercy and your steadfast love, right? He's talking about his situation, yep, he's sinned, now this situation has arisen, he's being punished, he's being afflicted by enemies, but Lord, act in light of your mercy and steadfast love. Specifically, David would be saying, toward me. Act mercifully and compassionately toward me, act in love toward me, and deliver me from this situation, O Lord. And he says, for they have been from of old, your mercy, your steadfast love. 
from of old in the sense of, well, these are just divine attributes of God. It's who he is, eternally speaking. But I would say also in mind here would be, sort of in David's mind, he'd be recalling throughout the history of Israel, God's covenant people, how time and again uh, God has acted toward his people with great mercy and steadfast love. And David would be sort of recalling that to mind and saying, Lord, continue to do so. Act in mercy, act in steadfast love toward your people in this situation, toward me, David would be saying. And then he goes on, verse 7, remember not, that is, again, remember here in the sense of don't act in light of, right? So act in light of mercy and steadfast love. Don't act in light of, right? Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions, right? Basically, don't act in light of my sinfulness, which goes way, way back in time, right? And it's not just he's been sinful from youth, but going all the way back toward conception, he's been sinful, right? But he's sort of looking back at his life, and I've sinned time and again, time and again, and Lord, here's how I would delight in you acting toward me, right? In light of your mercy and your love, not in light of what I justly deserve because of my sin. And so he goes on, according to your steadfast love, remember me, right? Because you're loving, right? In accordance with that, that attribute of you, yours, Lord, as a loving God, remember me. Don't forget me. Don't abandon me. Don't forsake me, but remember me. And of course, deliver me is what's in mind there. And so he says, according to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord, right? He wants God to show up, deliver him from this situation, from the hand of his enemies. And what does he say as the reason for it all, the, the, the purpose of it all? It's not, well, for me, Lord, of course, do it for me because, you know, I'm so wonderful and I just want to be out of this situation. And that's that. I'm sure, you know, David has a little bit of that in mind. It would be nice not to be afflicted by my enemies. But the fundamental reason that he calls God to act in this way and to deliver him is for the sake of God's own goodness. And here's the sense in which he means it, that God, as you act in goodness and love and mercy, that then that those qualities of yours in this situation, as you deliver me, might shine forth for all to see. That people, as you deliver me, might see your goodness, might see your love, might see your compassion in this situation, and that it might result in your glorification, God, that people might praise you, that you might be glorified in it all. That's what David has in mind. Don't just act because of me, right? Little old me. David, I'm nobody, but act in this situation for yourself, Lord, that your glory might shine forth, that you might be praised and glorified as a result. And then he goes on, good and upright is the Lord, therefore he instructs sinners in the way. And again, he comes back to this theme. We saw it in verses four and five, make me to know your ways, O Lord, teach me your paths, lead me in your truth and teach me, right? He has in mind here thinking again for himself, uh, of his problem of sinfulness that's in his heart and what does he desire for God to instruct again not just his head but 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 even his heart in the way of the Lord the way in which he ought to live his life obediently for the Lord and so he still has that in mind that sort of problem of sin and needing change deeply within so that then one might live out a life of obedience to the Lord and he sort of picks that back up here good and upright is the Lord therefore he instructs sinners in the way right this proper way the way of the Lord and again, he has in mind here, he's speaking generally that the Lord just delights in doing this. He's gracious and kind towards sinners, and, and so he instructs them in, in the appropriate way in which they're to live their lives. But he sort of has in mind here the sense that, well, hey, I, David, I'm one of those sinners, Lord. And so instruct me, right, teach me, not just my head, but my heart in the way that I ought to live my life. And he goes on, verse 9, he leads the humble 
in what is right and teaches the humble his way. Again, same thing. He's speaking generally that God just delights in doing this for those who are humble. He teaches them his way, the, the way in which they ought to live, to live obediently. And again, not just the head knowledge, but a heart knowledge as well. But David has in mind not just the general, but also, hey, I'm one of those humble people. I'm the humble sinner who comes before you, Lord, seeking to be instructed, not just my mind, but my heart, in your way, in the way in which I ought to live my life obediently unto you. So do that, Lord. Instruct me and change my heart. And he goes on, verse 10, all the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. Uh, probably better translated, I've been reading from the, the ESV, the English Standard Version, uh, testimonies would be better translated laws, for those who keep his covenant and his laws. So for those people, to put it simply, those who are faithful to him, who belong to him, right, all the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness. Basically saying, for those who belong to the Lord who are faithful to him, how does God behave toward them or operate toward them? He acts in love and faithfulness. And of course, what David has in mind is he's one of those faithful ones of the Lord, right? Not that he's perfect, he's acknowledged that, he's sinful, but in a general way there's an uprightness of heart and he delights in the Lord and loves him. And so, right, he's calling upon the Lord here to do what he does, which is to respond with steadfast love and faithfulness to his faithful people, David included. So then going on, verse 11, For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Again, still the same mindset. It's not for my sake, Lord, right? Certainly David benefits in the matter, right? As his sins are, uh, his guilt is pardoned, right? He benefits in the matter, but that's not the fundamental reason and purpose. He says ultimately, right, do it for your name's sake. Do it for yourself, for your glory. That God's graciousness and mercy and love might, again, sort of shine forth for people to see and that he might be praised and glorified as a result. Do it for your name's sake, O Lord. Pardon my guilt. And I'd say here, we have to understand here, sort of, in what way is David pleading for, for a pardon and for forgiveness? I'd say we can sort of talk about forgiveness in two senses. And here, he's not talking about the sense of sort of forgiveness in regard to sort of eternal things, right? As though uh, he hasn't yet trusted in the Lord, uh, put his faith in the Lord, and now he's coming before God with repentance and, and true saving faith and saying, save me from my sin uh, so that I might have eternal life in you. He's not talking about that type of uh, forgiveness, sort of eternal perspective, uh, forgiveness for sin, eternally speaking. But there's another sense in which we can talk about forgiveness of, of sin, and it's in the life of, of a true follower of the Lord's, that even for those of us who love the Lord, truly belong to Him, our sins have been forgiven, they have been pardoned, right? They no longer stand against us eternally speaking, we have eternal life, our sins are cleansed and paid for in Christ. But even for that, that true follower of the Lord, we still, right, we still sin. We're still imperfect. We fall short of God's standard. We still mess up and, and sin against the Lord, right? And what that does is it can cause a breakdown in our relationship with the Lord. Not that we don't still have a relationship with Him and, and belong to Him, but sort of that, that once thriving relationship with Him, now that there's sort of sin in our lives and maybe we're unrepentant at the time, right, that can cause a little bit of a breakdown in that walk with the Lord. And on top of that, because God does not delight in sin, but He hates sin and opposes sin, He responds often with punishment. At times He can be gracious and say, I will not punish, but at other times He will punish sin. Uh, even for those who belong to Him, right, who are forgiven, at the same time, sort of in the present, he can still, in a sense, you could say, hold the sin against a person who's unrepentant by bringing a punishment against them, 
right? It's not that he's holding it against them eternally speaking, but still it stands against them in the sense that it causes a breakdown in the relationship and there can be punishment that stands against that person because of it. And that's the type of forgiveness that David is seeking. He recognizes eternally so, I'm forgiven. He's not saying, please forgive me in that sense. He knows he's already forgiven. But even as a true follower of the Lord who is forgiven, he still recognizes, I've sinned, I've messed up, this has caused a breakdown in my relationship with the Lord, and I'm being punished as a result. And so forgive me in that sense. No longer hold that sin against me uh, in that sense, but forgive it, remove it in that sense, so that I might be restored into a thriving relationship with you and that this punishment might be removed from me. That's the type of forgiveness or pardon that he's speaking of. So he says here, for your, sake, for your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. Again, he's speaking generally here, but he still has himself in mind that, hey, I, David, am one of these people. I, I'm that sinner that I talked about in verse 8, and you instruct that sinner in the, the appropriate way. I'm that humble person in verse 9, right? And you instruct that humble person in your way, O Lord. Well, now again here, what is he saying? You know, I'm that person as well who fears you. And what do you do for that person who fears you? Well, you instruct that person in the way that he should choose. And again, not just instruct mentally, but instruct the heart as well and change the heart. And so again, he's continuing to plead, certainly that God would operate this way in generally, but especially in his life. Lord, instruct my heart. Bring about a change within me so that I would not continue to disobey you. And then he goes on, verse 13, his soul shall abide in well-being. This is the man who fears the Lord, right? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being, and his offspring shall inherit the land. That's just language for, to put it simply, that person will be blessed, right? And then going on, verse 14, the friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him and he makes known to them his covenant. And again, for those who fear him, this is generally speaking, but David has himself in mind as one of those who fears the Lord, and so that this would be true for him. And here, the word used for friendship, it can mean friendship, it could also mean sort of secret counsel or privileged counsel or, or knowledge, uh, or all of it. It sort of has the sense of uh, a close friendship and then in that friendship sort of standing in the confidence of the other that they might share things with you that they would not share with others. And I'd say that probably all of it is in view, friendship or secret counsel. Some are, uh, you know, some translations will render one uh, translated as one, some as the other. I'd say sort of all of it's in view. Uh, and, and here's, I think, what's meant, right? For the one who fears the Lord, what does that person have? Well, friendship with God, yep but also standing in sort of the privileged knowledge of the Lord. And what is that privileged knowledge? Well, it says in a sense at the end of the verse, right, and he makes known to them his covenant. The privileged knowledge that that person has is the covenant. Uh, and specifically here, what would be in view is sort of all the commands of the covenant, right? And again, I'd say that this knowledge, it's not just about a head knowledge, but again, a heart knowledge. So what he's saying here is for those who fear the Lord, right, they have friendship with the Lord. They are friends of God. But not only that, he also takes them into his secret counsel, in a sense, gives them this privileged knowledge, which is he makes known to them his covenant. Again, the covenantal stipulations, he makes known to them, but not just intellectually, but it's sort of a heart knowledge that he gives to them 
of the commands of the covenant that they might live it out faithfully in an ever-increasing way. Not that suddenly they're perfect and they live it out perfectly, but again, that in an ever-increasing way, they would have a deeper knowledge, heart knowledge, of the covenant that they might live it out more faithfully. And again, David has himself in mind as one of those who fears the Lord, uh, who would be a friend of God, as this verse says, and, and then for him also there would be, God would make known to him, again, a heart knowledge of these covenantal stipulations, the commands of the Lord, that he might live a life of greater faithfulness and obedience to the Lord and glorify and honor God all the more in that way. Then going on, verse 15, my eyes are ever toward the Lord. Now this could be in the general sense of just sort of, I'm always looking upon God, he's my Lord, he's my God, but I'd say it's, it's a little more specific than that. My eyes are ever toward the Lord in the sense of I'm looking to him for help. In this situation, right, I'm waiting upon the Lord, he's used that language elsewhere, he's waiting upon the Lord to show up, to act, to deliver him from this situation. So my eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. Right? He'll deliver me from this situation. Then it goes on, turn to me and be gracious to me. For I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. Right again, David knows he's forgiven, eternally speaking, but talking about sort of the present right here, right now, he knows he's done wrong, that it's caused sort of a little separation between him and God in, in that relationship and has brought upon him, of course, these punishments, this, this, these consequences. And so what is he crying out to, to God here? Uh, well, he's coming before the Lord with a repentant heart, acknowledging his sin, uh, repenting and saying, Lord, forgive me, right? Don't hold this against me any longer. Again, not in an eternal sense. He's forgiven, he knows that. But sort of in the here and now, Lord, Forgive these sins. Don't hold it against me. Let me then be brought back into a thriving walk with you. And may these punishments be, be removed from me. This affliction in which he stands at the hands of his enemies. May he be delivered from that as God forgives his sins. And then it goes on, verse 19. Consider how many are my foes and with what violent hatred they hate me. Oh, guard my soul and deliver me. And here, the, the word used here can be translated as soul. Uh, but it certainly has a range of meaning. Nefesh, the Hebrew word, has a significant range of meaning. It can mean soul. It can just refer to the person as a whole. And so it could be, oh, guard my soul. It could be just, oh, guard me, sort of in, in the sense referring to the person as a whole, not specifically the soul as in contrast to the body, so to speak. Uh, it can also just refer to life as well. So it could also be, oh, guard my life and deliver me. I would say probably my life is the best translation. Oh, guard my life and deliver me. I'd say sort of fitting the context, that, that best fits the context. And so here David, somehow his life is on the line. Again, we don't know all the specifics of what's going on, but his life is likely on the line. This is probably the best way to translate this. And he's saying, Lord, guard my life and deliver me, right? He's crying out to the Lord to, to act, to deliver him from this situation and to save his life. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. And here David's talking about his own integrity and uprightness. Not that David's trying to say, I, I'm perfect. Uh, you know, I'm without sin, I'm perfect. And so because I stand before you as perfect, may that preserve my life uh, as my enemies oppose me. That's not even remotely what he's saying. He's acknowledged quite clearly here that he's sinned. Uh, that's, that's very clear. He stated that explicitly. 
right? But what is he talking about? I'd say here he's talking about uh, his general integrity of heart and uprightness of heart that has made itself manifest through his response of repentance and seeking forgiveness in the Lord. And so in a sense where you see here, may integrity and uprightness preserve me, you could almost say, may my repentance preserve me. Right, that response of integrity of heart and uprightness of heart, this, this response of repentance, may as a result of this response of, of, of response of repentance, may his life then be preserved as God acts and as he, he comes before the Lord repentantly seeking forgiveness, may God then forgive him and as a result may his life be preserved. That's what he's saying there. So may integrity and uprightness preserve me for I wait for you. Right, he's waiting for the Lord, looking to the Lord to deliver him. And then he closes with verse 22, which at first glance might seem a little bit bizarre, like does it, does it fit here in this psalm? This psalm has sort of all been all about David and his situation, and then all of a sudden we get here, verse 22, redeem Israel. It's sort of like, well, where did Israel show up in all of this? It was just David in, in his situation, and now suddenly it's redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. And I think you have to understand that for David, right, he's king, and he's king over God's people, and he never has in mind just himself and his own situation. But as king, uh, he's concerned about God's people and their situation, and he recognizes, hey, it's not just I, David, uh, who wind up in these difficult situations with enemies around, afflicted. Uh, it's not just I'm the only one who will wind up in these situations, but of course Israel, time and again, has and will continue to wind up in similar situations. And so then this is the cry of his heart for Israel in those situations. Whenever it arises, whenever they're in a situation like his, like David's here, his cry is, Redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. Right? Not just, Lord, deliver me, save me, but also redeem Israel whenever the same thing happens to them. Deliver them, save them. He's the king of God's people. Of course, God's truly king, but, but he's king of Israel. So he always has them in mind as well. And he cannot help by, but, but close this psalm with all of Israel in view and say, Hey, whenever they're in this situation, Lord, deliver them, save them, redeem them out of all their troubles. So if we sort of come back to the psalm as a whole, because certainly there's a lot here, and we sort of look at, you know, what is, what is the psalm all about? Sort of the, the context, the backdrop, well, David has sinned, right? He's done something wrong, we don't know exactly what, but he's done something wrong, and he's being punished for it. And so he's being afflicted by his enemies, that's the punishment that God has brought upon him. And really, the psalm is then about uh, David's response, and sort of what is his response to sin? to his own sin, what is his response to this situation that he's in, not just his sin, but also uh, his affliction. And his response is that of repentance, seeking forgiveness in the Lord, of course, but then taking it that step further and recognizing, having not just in view this one situation, this singular sin and the consequences of it, but recognizing, hey, what's really at the root of this is my own sin problem deeply within me. And he doesn't want to see this continue to happen and repeat time after time again. And so what does he do? He doesn't just repent and seek forgiveness in the Lord, but, but recognizing the sin problem within him, he cries out to the Lord to effectively change his heart, right? To teach him his paths, right? The paths of the Lord. Make me to know your ways, O Lord, as he says. Teach me your paths. And again, not just an intellectual instruction, but an instruction of the heart as well, uh, certainly is what he has in mind, that God would go and change his heart, change David's heart, so that David might 
uh, with this new transformed heart, a heart of greater love for God and, and greater delight in obeying the Lord's commands and serving Him. With that newness of heart now, he can then go and faithfully serve the Lord all the more, glorify God all the more, and not fall prey to that former sinful nature of his as he did in the past and did in the situation in which we're talking about. And so this is David's desire, this is his cry. He recognizes his sin problem and that that's what's caused all of this and basically says, Lord, do something about my sin problem. I can't change my own heart. So you, Lord, right, you make me to know your ways, O oh Lord. You teach me your paths. You lead me in your truth and teach me, right? That's the cry of his heart for this spiritual growth, this heart transformation, this heart change for the Lord to bring that about so that he might all the more serve the Lord faithfully and honor him, live a life of obedience. And I think, I really want to focus our application on that. Not that we shouldn't apply the other things of respond to sin in your life with, with of course, repentance. We should do that. Uh, seeking forgiveness in the Lord, we ought to do that. But I really want to zero in on this last part of recognizing our, our sinfulness within us uh, and seeking for the Lord to bring about a change within us that we might live uh, all the more so a life of faithfulness and obedience unto the Lord. And so that's where I really want to camp out for the application, sort of our takeaway from this psalm for today. And I think we're very much like David. We're just like him, right? We love the Lord. We belong to him. But we recognize we're not perfect, right? We're imperfect. We still have sin within us. And we live that out day after day with acts of sin and rebellion against the Lord, just as David happened to do here as sort of the backdrop of, of this psalm. And we ought to have the same response to that that David did. You can sort of see, as you look at the tone of this, you see that he's sort of broken over his sinfulness, that he's disobeyed the Lord. And not just broken over this act of sin, but over the sinfulness within him that's sort of at the root of it. And his response is a response of really sadness over that, mourning over that, and say, God, change me. I need change in my heart, change me so that I won't do these things anymore, so that I might live that life of obedience to you. And I really want the same for us, to recognize uh, that we still have sin within our hearts, within our lives. And I think all too often we can be content where we are in our walk with the Lord. I think probably for everyone who's a follower of the Lord, at some point in your life, there's probably going to be or has been a degree of contentment sort of where you are in, in your walk with the Lord. Sort of, yeah, I know I'm not perfect, uh, but I'm a pretty good Christian, or I'm better than most, and I'm still doing all right, I'm okay, and I know my sins are forgiven, and so I'm sort of content where I am. And that's not the response that we should have. It's not the response that David has. For any sin that still lingers within us, our response should be great sadness and mourning over it and saying, it's not okay, it's not acceptable. I can't be content to be that way, Lord, but purge whatever sin lingers within me. May I be done with it. Change my heart, O Lord. Mold me more and more into the image, into the likeness of your son, Jesus Christ, that I might all the more faithfully live in light of your commands, live for you, obey you, and glorify you and honor you in everything I do, right? That was David's heart, and I want that to be our heart as well. Even for those of us who might look at ourselves and say, we're mature Christians, not in a prideful way, but maybe that's factually true about you, and you're rather mature in your walk, and it can maybe be easy to be content there and say, hey, I'm doing pretty well for myself. I'd say, you know, that's not good enough. If there's still sin within us, we ought to be broken over it and seek for God to change us and mold us more and more into the likeness of his son so that we might live lives all the more so that, that are faithful to him and glorify him and honor him. And so I want that to be our takeaway today, our application for each of us to leave here saying, I know there's still sin within me. Even if I think I'm a pretty good Christian, there's still sin within me and that is not acceptable, that is not okay. 
And I don't want to live in that sin anymore. I want to honor you and glorify you in every way in my life, Lord. And so purge me of this sin. Change my heart in every way that it needs to be changed. Mold me more and more into the image of your Son, my Lord Jesus Christ, that I might live for you better. That I might not sin against you anymore, but I might live in great obedience to you and glorify you and honor you in everything. Let that be the cry of our hearts as it was for David. Amen. And let's pray. Lord God, thank you for this psalm. Thank you for David in the example set before us here. He was far from a perfect man. He surely had a heart for you. And we are very much like him. We delight in you. We love you. And yet we still have sin in our hearts deeply within us. Yes, we're a new creation in Christ, and yet that sinful nature still lingers and causes us to live in that sin time and again, Lord, day after day. And may our response to that sin be the same as David's response, certainly to repent of it, to seek forgiveness in you, O Lord, but to take it a step further and to just mourn over that sinfulness within us and to have that cry that David had, Lord, make me to know your ways. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. Lord, we need to be instructed and taught, not just in our minds, but in our hearts. Not just so that we might understand intellectually all that you desire for us, all of your commands, the way in which you desire us to live in light of you and your commands, Lord, but we need for our hearts to be instructed for hearts to grow in love for you, for hearts to grow in love for your commands and living for you and serving you. And may you do that work within us. May we have that same cry of David's to, for that spiritual growth, for that heart change and transformation deeply within us so that we might not sin against you anymore and dishonor you in that way, but that we might live lives of obedience, honoring and glorifying you in everything, Lord. And as we leave here today, Lord, may we acknowledge that sinfulness within us. May we follow David's leading, and may you work. Lord, as we seek that change of heart, that spiritual growth, Holy Spirit, work within us. Move, grow us, mold us more and more into the likeness of Christ as you delight in doing. And may we then live out lives of greater faithfulness, obedience. May we then glorify you in our every action, Lord knowing that not only will you be glorified, and certainly that's what it's all about, but we will also be blessed as we're transformed, as we obey you all the more faithfully. We know that the result of that for us as well will be great blessing. And so may we hear today's challenge, live it out for your glory and for our blessing in your name. Amen.